first of all, I suppose people need to understand that the brain and the mind and the nervous system aren't separate from any other part of the body. They're all hmm. in constant communication. So whatever you're doing from a bottom-up biological, physical perspective is promoting brain health. All of those things that we would do to take care of, you know, heart health, you know, hmm. all of those messages that we have about um, what children should be doing to grow and thrive, they're all entirely fundamentally relevant to human brain health, even as grown-ups. How do we become our best and live a life of meaning and purpose? In a world where the constant focus is on fixing what's wrong with us, we want to highlight what is right and good about you to help you live out your best every day. Hi, I'm Eloise Wellings. And I'm Rory Darkins. And this is What's Right Within. Hello and welcome back, or if it is your first time today, welcome to What's Right Within. Today we are joined by another Kiwi. I love conversations with Kiwis, as you may have noticed by now. Uh, today we're joined by Dr. Sarah Mackay. Dr. Mackay is a neuroscientist with a PhD from Oxford. She's the author of the Women's Brain Book, the neuroscience of health hormones and happiness, which explores the female lifespan through the lens of neurobiology. And in 2019, Sarah hosted an episode of ABC Catalyst exploring brain health, biohacking and longevity. Dr. Sarah Mackay is also the founder and director of the Neuroscience Academy, which provides continuing education and development uh, to professionals wishing to use neuroscience in their work. So you might see already why we're so keen to talk to Dr. Sarah Mackay and and find out how we can improve our brains. Yeah. Dr. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. (laughs) Oh, it is so nice to have someone pronounce my name correctly. (laughs) The appropriate (laughs) accent. So thank you. Yes, well, I'm waiting for Rory's accent to thicken and thicken as we go along. Mine probably will too. (laughs) Great. Yeah. That's my hope in this episode is that it progressively just comes back to me more and more. Um, So Dr. Sarah, speaking of New Zealand, uh, you grew up in the South Island of New Zealand. Um, Tell us a little bit about your journey and and where you've come from and and how you've ended up where you are today. Yeah. Oh, I'd be delighted to talk about that. I grew up in Christchurch, which when I grew up in the, you know, 80s and 90s, nothing ever, ever happened there. It once snowed and I was about five. And that's about the, the, the biggest thing that ever happened there. Of course, um, that's all changed now. And New Zealand's dealt with, well, Christchurch and New Zealand have dealt with a couple of really big um, events with the Christchurch earthquakes that happened and then the mosque massacre a couple of years ago. But certainly when I grew up, it was just such a, you know, a, a really easy, gentle world to grow up in. I had a great family and a, grew up in a really, you know, straightforward Kiwi suburban upbringing, you know, the beach and the mountains were there. And um, it was just, it was just all very gentle and easy and, and kind. And I, you know, I had a really great childhood. I liked school. Um, I liked books. I liked reading. I played lots of sport as well. I was a, pretty, I was a real typical wheat bits and reading like Kiwi kid. Um, <laughs> When I went off to, um, I went to my, did my first year of university in Christchurch at Canterbury University and was doing a lot of different sciences and also some art subjects as well, really. And um, did a, did a did, um, psychology 101, 
which um, I think lots of people do when they head off to university. And when I was in that, there was uh, a lesson on, bi- I remember this so clearly, biological psychology. And it was the first time I had actually ever, I don't know what I was doing, what they taught us at high school, but this was the first time they taught us about neurons in the brain and how the brain was structured and how it functioned and how neurons talk to each other across synapses. And I can still remember drawing the diagram of a synapse, which is the point where two neurons communicate. And I was just, I just loved that. I was like, this is sort of the biology of who we are in our mind. And then in that same lecture, I've told this story so many times, so apologies if people have heard it before, um, that the lecturer said, can you, here's a book to read, go away, and I highly recommend you read it. And it was a book called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat by a neurologist called Oliver Sacks. And he was just an absolute master at storytelling from the perspective of case studies of his, his patients who had seen the neurology clinic. So the really strange, often sad, and really quite curious things that go wrong with people when things go wrong with their brains. And I was like, mm. oh, that's the most, it was, it was honestly the most interesting notion I'd ever come across. Mm. I was captivated. And um, at that time, so we're talking kind of early 90s, um, Otago University had the previous year just built a a new degree discipline neuroscience it was a pretty new um, subject then they were pulling together the neuro component from different physiology and pharmacology and neurology and um, zoology and all all of those sort of disciplines were coming together to this this new science which was emerging and it really was in the early 90s newly emerging and so I moved down to Otago University the next year, which if you grew up in New Zealand is the university to go to because it's kind of the entire town is overrun by students and you basically burn lots of couches and drink lots of beer and <laughs> go to the pub and, and, and you know, um, it was right in the middle of Britpop, so Oasis was blaring out of every, you know, sort of student flat and um, it, was a, it was a really fun time. Still back in the 90s, nothing really much happened on... Um, in New Zealand back then so I had a I had a really great time there and met that was really what I say I sort of met and fell in love with the discipline of science how how science is done in universities and also just continued my love affair with with neuroscience and then I got to the end of that and followed the very um, tried and true Kiwi tradition of going on your big OE or (laughs) overseas experience and saw a PhD PhD program offered at Oxford University in neuroscience was like that's it um, and I was really fortunate to win a spot there. Um, not I, at the time, wasn't quite sure how I managed to pull that off, but I did. I got in. I don't know. It was my Kiwi charm. Um, I think it was. You know what they say when you have a beginner's mindset, you don't know what you don't know, and so often you're a bit more confident than you otherwise would be. Yeah. So I had have known who the people who were that were interviewing me and anything about Oxford beyond knowing it had nice buildings. I think I would have. <laughs> not got in but I just kind of rocked up yeah um and and it, and it all went you know in my favor I suppose so that was um yeah so that's how I ended up in Oxford and um really loved my time there um but did start getting a bit of a itch that there was I, I loved academia I loved research loved being in the research lab loved that intellectual academic world but felt a, a little bit I don't know whether it's the, the upbringing I had my mum's a very community-minded social justice kind of person that 
if I'm not giving something to other people with the work I'm doing, you know, why am I doing this? Why am I looking to see how neurons in the brain wire up during development mm -hmm. in visual cortex? I mean, what, how's that really going to help people? So I did always have a little discomfort yeah. with academia solely for academia's sake. I loved it, but I felt a little bit guilty. Um, and I think that's probably a bit of my upbringing as well. Um, I'm a neuroscientist and I love the brain. I love science, but I need to be doing something with this yeah. beyond poking around and looking down microscopes in the lab and, and just sort of stepped out of academia to build a business that offered that same opportunity to learn about neuroscience that I had had mm. and try and share that, teach that, make it fun and engaging and interesting, not sort of super serious and stressful and scary and, and provide that to adults. There's a lot of focus on STEM education for young people. I wanted to mm. give the opportunity for adults who might be in their, you know, the, 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 you know, the final decades of their career, but are interested to learn more about the brain mm -hmm. and, and have not really had those opportunities to do so. Awesome. so that's my autobiography. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what, are some, what are some common myths about the brain that you see in society today that you'd like to clarify or, or dispel? Gosh, there's so many. Where do I start? I think my... But my favourite soapbox to stand on at the moment is, and it's probably not as much within every, you know, everyday, the everyday society world out there, um, is, is talking about the lizard brain all the time whenever we are looking for a sort of description of the brain's um, automatic hardwired-in responses, particularly when we're talking about emotions or anxiety or fear or behaviours which may be thoughtless. And paraphrase a quote from another um, neuroscientist, Lisa Feldman Barrett, the only animal that has a lizard brain is a lizard. I guess the idea really is now often used as a metaphor or an analogy, whatever you want to use, but, it, but people seem to think that we have this kind of reptilian core, the seat of our, you know, the, the heart of our brain, the core of our brain that, that kind of does all of the default thinking and feeling and, and we don't have a lot of control over that and that's not at all what our contemporary understanding of how human brains a developed or b now work yeah um so that's that's just a a, a one a, my one particular kind of thing i like to rant about i suppose the other is there's a couple of others one is that we have a creative right and i even have to try and get this around the wrong way the right way which is not right um, a creative right and an analytical left as if we've got these kind of two brains in our head and yeah. artistic people have a really strong right brain and analytical thinking people have a strong left and you are either one or the other. There are some functions of human behaviour which are more lateralised or controlled by one side of the brain versus the other. Mm -hmm. And the most obvious and we know is, is, is you know, pretty universal and all um, most animals and definitely humans is that by the left hand side of your brain controls the muscles on the right side of your body and vice versa the right side mm. of your brain controls the muscles on your left that's you know that there's a crossover in terms yeah. of muscle control and also sensation um so someone who is right-handed who uses their right hand a whole lot more will have a larger bit of their brain devoted to their hand on the left hand side of their brain than the other way around yeah that doesn't mean that artistic people have you know 
create a functioning right hand versus left hand brain. And also language, some aspects of language, but not all are more often located on the left hemisphere than the right. But that doesn't mean the right doesn't walk and the left yeah. does. Or, yeah. Presented. Sometimes, and there's some very old experience, experiments done many years ago about split-brained people who have their close in the, the part that connects the two hemispheres cut that seemed to imply there was these two types of brains. So often what we see historically, there may be some old experiments or old ideas that feel intuitive and hold today and just sort of sound catchy and, and hold on like the lizard brain, left brain, right brain. And there's plenty of others. People say you only use 10% of your brain. Yeah. 90% of it waiting there with this potential to be tapped into. Yeah. Um, things, things like that and you hold up. There's mm. actually, a, there's, um, I can share it with you. There is a formalised um, um, sort of a academic quiz that you can go through and do um, that that sort of you can get a score for how many neuromyths you believe, even if you've been reasonably well educated in neuroscience. Yeah, wow. Yeah, there's lots of different ones people believe. Learning styles, you're either an auditory or a kinesthetic or a visual learner. Um, those those types of things, none of them hold up. <laughs> yeah. I'm so pleased you went there because you've touched on a few of the questions I was going to ask you later. Um, but I, I just wanted to, Sorry, you no, it's great. I wanted to lead with some of the myths just to sort of position this conversation in, um, in the context of, I guess, um, neuroscience or, you know, brain science's role in everyday life. And I think whilst we might not all walk around thinking about the term neuroscience, we actually do kind of maybe without knowing it, take on some of these ideas and not necessarily um, know if they're if they're well grounded or not so um, to that end how do you define brain health like we talk about well-being we talk about performance on the podcast but from a neuroscience point of view like how do you think about health in the brain yeah well I'm I'm trained as a neuroscientist and lots of people seem to think that neuroscientists think that the brain and the body is somehow separate as if you know we're, we're all trained back in the days of you know Plato or something where the mind and the you know it was all separate and there was arguments about whether they were the same or different and and I as a neuroscientist was always you know the, the, the brain is one organ within a body <laughs> there's no separation and we have this nervous system which travels you know the tips of our fingers and the tips of our toes and integrates and is in constant communication and interaction with every organ and system within our body with the brain kind of controlling a lot of that but controlling that because it's sort of receiving messages and sending them back out again so in terms of brain health I wouldn't separate it from any other aspect of physical health um, in any in any way that you would perhaps in many ways separate mind or mental health from, from physical health. They're so intimately entwined. There's a model I teach um, in a lot of my courses where I try kind of loosely based on or inspired by the psychosocial, um, biopsychosocial model, whereby I kind of place the brain not at the top or the bottom, but in the center and talk about all of the various influences or data inputs and, and outputs or conversations um, that, that take place and I put place the brain sort of in the center and then talk about bottom-up influences which are every aspect of our biology and it's not as if the brain is up the top and messages are kind of coming in and out so I mean your eyes are an extension of your brain you can see we've got you know nervous system at the tip of our fingers mm. so there's constant communication with our bottom-up biology 
there's all there's messages flowing yeah. back and forth the entire time and also with the outside world and with other people and within the light dark cycle and nature you know our bodies constantly and brains are constantly receiving data and then in turn moving through and manipulating the outside world and then we've got this aspect of what we might call mind right as i call top down things that we may think are separate from the brain but are really functions of the brain or one way to talk that, that we, we can define in a bit if you want is emergent properties which are you know thoughts and feelings and emotions and attitudes and beliefs and mindset these are things that we as humans do but they are really just emergent properties of the brain doing what the brain does which is interact with the body and the outside world so it's kind of put it in the middle and call it bottom up outside and top down um but it's not the, the brain isn't really separate. It's just an integral yeah. part of all mm. these three. Yeah, mm. yeah, love that. I love that model. Um, most people are, mm. are aware of physical health and, and fitness and how to develop these. But from a neuroscience perspective, is this something that we should be working on? And how can people work on on their brain health and fitness? Yeah, I mean. The, the easiest way is to perhaps go back to this bottom-up, outside and top-down model. And first of all, I suppose people need to understand that the brain and the mind and the nervous system aren't separate from any other part of the body. They're all hmm. in constant communication. So whatever you're doing from a bottom-up biological, physical perspective is promoting brain health. If you're doing the things that, you know, we don't want to get into the nitty-gritty of what you should do and what you've fad or fashion or research is supporting what at the moment but we all know what we've got to do to look after our physical health sleep love my sleep we need to eat the right kinds of nutritious food and, um, mm. move our bodies through the world you know physically exercise our bodies all of those things that we would do to take care of you know heart health you know mm. all of those messages that we have about um, what children should be doing to grow and thrive they're all entirely fundamentally relevant to human brain health, even as grown-ups. Mm. We all need to sort of take care of our brains from the outside in. So by that, I mean, I mean, a social prescription is fundamental to anyone's health and well-being. It always comes quite low down on the list. It's actually very, very high up on the list in terms of determinants of physical health and brain health. I think perhaps in the last year or so, people have become more suddenly more aware of the impact of social isolation yes. um, because of the pandemic and social distancing that everyone's had to do and the quarantining, et cetera. Um, that's, that's kind of raised, I suppose, social connection up and a lot of people's awareness yeah. of how fundamental that is. Because we are, you know, we are these sort of tribal social animals that from the minute we're born to the minute we die and every kind of point through the lifespan, we really need to be interacting with other people to be healthy mm. and our brains need that to grow and develop and, and, and to stay healthy. Um, and then also interacting with the natural world because our brains evolved to move bodies through the world. It didn't evolve for us. Brains didn't evolve to think. Brains simply evolved to help bodies that, that, that navigate through the world. Plants don't have brains because they don't move. Mm. Any animal, any organism that moves requires a brain and a nervous system to navigate and respond and to be able to appropriately regulate in the changing environment. Mm. So when we're moving our bodies through the natural world and respecting the fact that there's this light dark cycle that we our earth spins on the axis and there's nighttime in which we are programmed evolutionarily to sleep, you know, then we're taking care of our brain from outside mm. and, and then finally down. 
which is harder, um, perhaps the harder way, the hardest way to get good data into the brain, good reliable data, harder than taking care of your physical health and taking care of your health, your brain health from the outside in, is taking care of things like mindset and expectations emotional regulation, managing your thoughts, all of those things are quite difficult. They're very kind of growing up, mm. hard tasks. That's why a lot of us struggle with attention or struggle with negative thoughts and worries and struggle, you know, athletes really need to refine their ability to attend and focus and choose what to pay attention to and what not to pay attention to. That's all tough. We can get better at it using bottom-up and outside-in techniques. We've also got to take care of that top-down as well. Mm, that's um i'm really interested in that and so from a like how would someone listening to this go about um training the top-down um ability like i kind of have two questions one is about um thoughts and emotions and kind of like what impact they actually have on the brain and the nervous system and, and our functioning but then secondly how would someone go about improving those have you found strategies that are helpful um, that's what the world of sort of <laughs> therapy, well, that's why it's hard to get from point A to point B. And we and humans struggle with change. And that's why we have schools with teachers who help people learn. Mm. And, you know, therapists, clinics, with psychologists and psychotherapists who are helping people manage their mind and what they're thinking and what they're feeling. Because if we, we, can't, we can't learn and we can't change and we can't heal, um, it, life is tough. Mm. Um, so I will say, you know, it, it, it's it's difficult. Typically, the problem is this sort of struggle to change. This, I'm here and I want to be there and I don't know how to get there. Whether that be I'm, I'm in this negative spiral of thought that's really damaging and limiting and I want to have a different type of thought process going on in my head. How do I get there? Um, so that, 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 that is hard. And, it, and and it's a, and it's a big subject, so I'll just try and choose sort of one one yep. path to go down and one way to explain that from a neuroscience perspective, which people may or may not find useful. Um, but in, if we think about um, the last year, because it's everyone's experience, mm. no one on the planet who hasn't lived through twenty twenty and at times struggled with what's going on, particularly March April last year when. The, it, it was really big and overwhelming and no one really kind of knew what to do and everyone was sort of struggling and scrambling yeah. to keep up and this word uncertainty was flying mm. around everywhere that was the word of the day we were uncertain we didn't know what was coming next every plan goal holiday whatever we had planned for the rest of the year was suddenly evaporated we yeah. didn't really kind of know what was going to happen from day to day and everyone was feeling very uncertain and that's a really typical um, the way that humans react, the way humans react, and the way many of us reacted by worrying, by scanning for information and data, watching daily press conferences or reading the newspapers or, you know, constantly scrolling on our phones or ringing people, all of, all of those responses are pretty typical and predictable because of one of the things that our brain has evolved to do, and that is to make a, be a very good um, next guess, be, sorry, best guess of what is happening next. We call it prediction. Mm. So our brains are, this is a bit of a, of a trendy word in neuroscience at the moment, is to say our brains are prediction machines. And what do I mean by that? Is that our brains are kind of always thinking one step ahead. What is coming next? What should I be thinking? What should I be feeling based on 
what is going on in my body from the bottom up within this context in the world around me and the outside in and also in relationship to previous experiences I've had or similar similar kind of mm. you know memories experiences I've had so top down and one way to think about that is if you say you're riding a bike if you know how to ride a bike and you're biking along a really busy street and you aren't thinking about what you're doing precisely in that point in time in fact your brain's always making a sort of a guess about sort of 10 20 30 meters in front of you so you're 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 responding on your bike to what your brain was guessing was ahead of you mm. not what's right kind of happening there so if you know a pedestrian's about to you see a pedestrian on the side of the road you're anticipating they may run out in front of you and you know 10 seconds time because they're 20 meters ahead so your brain's always kind of judging about what's in front of you mm. and then you're responding in the appropriate way so you see what I mean? We're always kind of making these predictions. When we haven't got data coming in, we haven't got reliable information coming in, when all of the plans, all of the schedules, everything that we thought was going to be happening suddenly isn't happening anymore, hmm. the brain hasn't got anything to hold on to when it predicts. And so it kind of turns inward yeah. and it sort of starts worrying, goes, when have I last been in this situation? When did I last not know what was happening? Um, you don't really kind of know what to do. Your brain's constantly trying to fill that gap. And when you've got that gap, it gets filled with a lot of, angst a lot of worry a lot of anxiety and that very very quickly spirals and what we do we, we're going out searching for data to try and fill the gap we're reading mm. newspapers we're talking to people we're wondering we're checking mm. and often if that data is not reliable if the data is we don't know the whole world is uncertain maybe we're going to lockdown maybe we won't maybe schools will stay open maybe they'll close maybe vaccines will work maybe they won't the constant messages that are coming in are not very clear yeah. then gap gets bigger the, the brain can't predict what's happening next and we constantly fill that up with our own worrying thoughts and emotions mm. and so what we need to learn to do and what we used to do back in 2019 before everyone was experiencing this you went to a therapist and said i've you know um kind of you know i've got terrible headaches my doctor's booked me in for an mri scan in two weeks and I don't know what's going on. So not worried if you've got a brain bleed or a brain tumor or migraines, you don't know. You're very, very worried. You have no tolerance for that uncertainty. That's an incredibly worrying time. You haven't got the right information coming in. Mm. Yeah. We have a lot of these experiences in 2019, a therapist would have said, you're very intolerant to uncertainty. That's a pretty mm. typical human reaction. What can you do to build appropriate data coming in so you give yourself some certainty you're kind of lowering the tone mm. of all of that worry and anxiety rambling around for data so that's just kind of one example we call this tolerance to uncertainty yeah well we can do things to build the data set back so our brains have got something to predict and to hang on to but you have yeah. to do the work again these things are never easy yeah and so how can we for those people that do str struggle with anxiety and, and do struggle with uh, uncertainty now, how can people build their, their tolerance to uncertainty? What yeah. are the practical things that we can do to, to go there? Very, there are some really good practical evidence-based tools that we, that we can use. And they sound, some of them sound a little bit kind of trite, but they are essentially based on this idea. Our brain likes to know what happens is coming next. If the outside world isn't giving you anything to hold on to you've got to build your own sort of stability put your own anchors in place mm. and so one of the very first things that you'll often be prescribed if you're intolerant to uncertainty and typically 
for in 2019 and beyond, you know, before that, Mom was suddenly floundering around. And this sounds so trite, but it is the, the, to build yourself a really de detailed daily schedule. A little bit like what you might do if you're a kid at school or, you know, you've got, um, you know, you're, you're at high school and you have this really detailed timetable of what you have to do. I think my son, he had to be at AFL training at 7 a.m. At 8 a.m. they were then being driven up to school. He had to get changed. And at 8.30 he had maths. And then he's got his homeroom at 9.30, whatever. So he's got this detailed daily schedule. He doesn't have to really kind of figure out what to do next. Within mm. that, there's a little bit of flexibility. But there's quite a detailed daily plan. And if you build a really detailed daily schedule, even if it's down into 15-minute increments, yeah. you're not constantly wondering what you need to do next. It requires bringing, instead of this big picture, you know, so I can't see the forest for the trees kind of thinking you've got to bring your focus in. You've got to control what you can, what is immediately in front of you. And there's mm. a bit of a saying like you know, soldiers in the military or, you know, airline pilots, they don't kind of rise to meet the challenge. They fall back on systems and processes. They fall back on all of the systems and processes that they have learned mm. and they diligently follow through that because it removes any, again, uncertainty you just sort of follow the system through and if you build a schedule you build a system then you know you're not rising to the challenge you're just kind of you know very diligently following through what you've got and what that does um, we have really good evidence that it reduces worry and it reduces anxiety it just means of controlling what's in front of you yeah those are those are brilliant and a lot of the time um i find the smallest things make the biggest difference and when you do introduce them they sound so um <laughs> they sound so small like um you know the a gratitude practice or you know like um breaking it down to daily tasks and actually ticking them off and celebrating the win of ticking them off and and yeah. and things like that but i think what you shared about dopamine and how we when we feel like we're making we see that we're making progress even if it's one piece of the puzzle literally um that yeah. that actually improves the neurochemistry that we're that we've yeah. got right it, yeah and it's not it, it removes goals and expectations from being so far away that you're never gonna you feel like you're never gonna get there and certainly many people's long-term goals very hard to envisage a long-term goal now so just breaking it down, yeah, like into little, just into little small steps. Yeah, um, make them more doable and more pleasurable, and yeah, that's easier. great. Um, and it, it sort of links to a question I wanted to ask about performance. You know, a lot of athletes use visualization to pre prepare mentally for a performance. Um, and I'm interested in your perspective on, you know, visualization generally. Like, how does that work? I know that there's there's some benefits to actually seeing, you know, seeing the future in, in the positive sense or kind of working through it, like what's going on in the brain and, and how does that benefit us? Yeah, cool, cool question. Um, and there's some really good research looking into the neurobiology of vis visualization. And when I talk about that, using an athlete, what athletes do as an example of, you know, the proof of the pudding, this is how it works, because mm. how they achieve. Um, is always such a really great example and interestingly a lot of the mental rehearsal or visualization research has been done on, done on athletes and also quite a lot of musicians as well yeah um because you know that and it probably it's almost easier to do on musicians because they're not really moving often they're practicing a piece on a piano and yeah. that's easier to work with than yeah. some in a 
you know, an athlete training for a, you know, a hundred mile race or something. Um, but, but I mean, to kind of put in the most simple neuroscience terminology is that from the brain's perspective, there's not a lot of difference. There are some, but not a lot of differences between visualizing doing a particular task, whether it be playing a piano or, you know, training, training for an event versus the actual training or practice itself. There are some differences if we are to, for example, you couldn't necessarily only visualize and get better at a task. Mm. I'll, use, I'll use playing the piano um, as an example. So we, and, and these studies have been, been done for a number of years, whereby we have a musician who practices playing a particular piece and then looking at their performance and they'll get better the more and more they practice. They can practice and visualize when they're not practicing and they will get better at that. Can they visualize only and get better? Yes, but they won't get better better than they would have. They still got to manually practice yeah. as well. But the brain changes that we see when they are only mentally visualizing playing, um, we do see changes in the brain in terms of how many parts of the brain are recruited and how these the, the, the kind of parts of the brain that are mapped over time change. Mm. So we definitely see changes in the brain that can be visualized and mapped using the various devices that neuroscientists use, we can, we can see those changes with visualization alone. However, it's not a substitute for the real thing. Yeah. The best way to do it is to do both. Yeah. The physical practice and the, and the visualization. When it comes to say an athlete and use something like gymnastics, because I often think, you know, you're watching a gymnast um, before they do some kind of Olympic routine, you can, yeah. they, you can almost kind of see them going through the routine in their yeah. mind's eye before they do it. Um, and, the, and a big part of, of doing that is not to, is for them not to visualize themselves as if they're watching themselves do it on, mm. like on TV, but to visualize and to use every sense and to be, and have a very, very detailed, very embodied um, visualization practice. So, you know, you're thinking about what you're hearing, what you're seeing, every precise muscle movement that is required and positioning of your body. Um, and also visualizing your 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 how you're going to be feeling about that. You know, you're, you're a kind of a positive emotional state um, to be in. So it's 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 kind of involving every sort of sense mm. that you have when you are practicing that visualization. You have to come up with a as as realistic to your brain's visualization as possible for it to be a benefit. You can't just kind of think about oh, this is what I'll look like when I'm doing that and think about that once or twice. It's about coming up with a very, very detailed almost script for that. And I think it's really, and many athletes probably know this, a lot of people um, in the rest of the world don't, is that you can also visualise your emotional response to a particular situation. Mm. Even something going wrong, perhaps something goes wrong, you can practise how you will recover from that mm. in a really positive way, not just rehearsing, you know, missing a ball in a game of tennis, but if I miss a ball, how am I going to respond emotionally and physically? And what am I going to do in, in my recovery? And you can practice that as well. You can practice not feeling nervous, for example, mm. um, or feeling positive anticipation mm. instead of, you know, vomiting nerves. Yeah. Um, so there's, it's, really, it's a really useful and really powerful tool, but it never um, substitutes for the real yeah. thing, unfortunately. Yeah. You've got to do a bit of both. It is being, it's interestingly in terms of being used as a way of, and like rehab and recovery when you can't hmm. necessarily practice or people you know perhaps had um some kind of injury or stroke or, or whatnot is visualizing hmm. um 
and that helps as part of the recovery. And we think maybe the brain's sending little kind of micro signals to the muscles, which are kind of activating a little bit so that yeah. kind of keeping that muscle strength up, for example. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Thanks for clarifying that. That's yeah. fascinating. So interesting. Um, <laughs> and I think just, you know, if, if there's this sort of some practical guidance on how people can, um, if they're interested to get started with a visualization practice, you know, um, mm. are, are there any kind of guiding thoughts on that? You know, one one that I like to kind of start with is start by trying to visualize things going right, because <laughs> it's I think it's it's naturally a bit easier to envisage everything going wrong, um, and but it's not that you would want to ultimately only um, visualize things going well but um, I think as a starting point it's like spend more time just visualizing what you want rather than what you don't want but do you have any kind of yeah. any add-ons to that or any changes to that yeah I think I mean people say you know visualize what you want to go right um, and don't visualize what you want to go wrong but if you can visualize things going wrong but how you're going to respond in the right way yes yeah. it's, it's key there I think people people need to um, almost, and I'm a big fan of good old-fashioned pen and paper because it gets the it gets the gist, it gets everything out of your brain. Because you most people don't do a lot of it these days; it's a bit more laborious. You have to work harder to get the words written on a piece of paper, not typing them on a computer, writing them down. So write down what the mm. practices that you want to approve, and you have to be very, very specific because a visualization typically works for. Um, a, a, a precise scenario um, and write down everything that is involved in that mm. what every and all of the senses that are involved and also then the underlying thoughts and mm. feelings that you'll be having in that time when you've got all of them down and you've got the ideal scenario then you can kind of almost come up with the right you know um, the, the, the right order of timing in which they will need to be done yeah um, so 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 take quite a You've got to step back and then quite take quite a detailed approach to come up with a really complete visualization script in a way. Yeah. And then you need to set aside the time or have the time to be able to rehearse that. Yeah. In the same way that you would set aside time for your physical training. Yeah. Brilliant. So and it's a good segue actually into our, our, uh, my next question about habits. And you know, you're talking about creating new habits potentially to to start visualizing. Um, a lot of people are interested in habits and, and habit changes, but it can be difficult to, to change a habit, uh, especially a bad one. Um, how do you think about habits and the role of, of neuroscience in improving them? Mm. Yeah, um, the, the neurobiology of habits is always a really good topic. And again, it's another big topic, and, but it's very, very relevant to behavior change. And I quite often talk about when I talk about behavior change, that we've got problems with the will, the want, or the way. Um, will being around motivation, um, which we've talked a bit about, the way being a clear, you know, maybe having a mentor or a guide or the information to get you there. With the want, W-O-N-T is like a very old-fashioned word for habits. You know, the ladies in Bridgerton, as was their want, they read that newsletter they read. Um, <laughs> if you watch Bridgerton, um, you know, as to want, you be in bed in the morning. So it's, a, it's just alliteration to go with the will and the way. Um, and, and often what people do when they're trying to change a behavior is that they have a, a habit that they're performing. Maybe they know that it's a habit. Maybe they're not very aware of it, that they are fighting against, that they don't want to do anymore. And if it's a true habit, 
a true habit is a little bit like riding a bike. It is like trying to learn how to um, unlearn how to ride a bike. Mm. From the perspective of the brain, the brain doesn't have any kind of moral judgment code over whether a habit is good or bad. It has simply decided that is a very important behavior or thought perhaps that I want to store permanently and roll out whenever I need to without any consideration or having to use too much cognitive power. I'd rather free my, you know, I'd rather free my cognition to, to, to on what's curious or new or needs my attention. So habits are essentially stored in the brain in very much the same way as a lot of automated motor skills like bike, like riding a bike or playing a piano if you're a professional musician or shooting a goal if you're a basketball player. They are stored in, in much the same way because the brain's deemed them to be worthy of being stored and, they, and they're stored in a region of the brain called the striatum. Now, one of the things that is, well, there's a couple of things that are important to know about habits. One is that they are always, um, they always have a cue or a trigger or a situation or a person or an event yeah. around them. There's always some type of trigger in which the brain they are rolled out. So when you encounter a particular situation, the brain just rolls out this habit. They don't require a lot of thought or, you know, they just, they just, they just sort of happen. But typically they were learned in response to something because you know, you 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 perform them enough times mm. and they happened over and over again or they happened in an important enough situation mm. that your brain deemed, deemed them worthy. The unfortunate thing about habits is you can't unlearn a habit, just like you can't unlearn how to ride a bike. Maybe you, some people can, but most people can't. Even if you haven't done it for a very long time, they're typically stored permanently in response to the cue. So what you need to do if there is an undesirable behavior that you perform is to again take a little bit of a step back be very thoughtful about it perhaps even write down with pen and paper when does this happen and why there's always a cue there's always a situation we need to practice a new behavior in its place that is where the grit and determination come in because sometimes that can be really hard yeah. and it might not be something we want to do we have to make it easy we have to make it frictionless we have to make it enjoyable we have to in some way find reward pleasure in there that we will repeat it enough times that's brilliant um and so from from what i hear from that it's it's very much about just in a first step is that awareness and detail of the the cue and what's happening and, and how you're actually doing it and that that look at it detailing that gives you the ability to come up with a, a very clear yeah. alternative yep. strategize um, an alternative yeah. And I think be kind and gentle on yourself if you slip back mm. because it's um, it's it's like slipping back into, oh, I can remember how to ride a bike again if you were trying to unlearn how to ride the bike. Yeah. Mm. It's not because you're weak. Remember, your brain doesn't cast moral judgment over habits. It just thinks, well, that was useful. Mm. Mm. So that's all it's doing. It's, it's kind of defaulting back to that old pathway, which is, you know, easy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I love that. That's a great, a great point to mm. add. Um and last question on habits um, before we come to sort of a, a summary, and that is like I saw you mention about warm, caring relationships as a foundation for behavior change. Um, mm. Can you tell us what you tell us more about that? Yeah, I think anyone who's ever tried to change, um, whether that be a child learning, you know, learning at school, and I, I think about that as a type of behavior change. Um, or someone going to see a therapist or perhaps you know you've got a big sporting goal you typically always 
want someone to help you along the way, a coach or a mentor or a guide or a therapist or a teacher, someone who knows, you know, knows this, not just a subject matter, but knows how to teach or how to help you learn or how to help you move from point A to point B, how to coach. Mm. And what, what they can do is, um, you know, help you along that pathway. They can't always, they can't do it for you and they can't always, you know, have stick in the carrot. Um, but but what you want is someone who knows enough about what mm. it is that you're trying to do and how to help someone along the way. And that's often the key to that. Any any big change is, is, an, is another person. Mm. And within the world of sort of psychology and therapy and counselling, there are just so many schools of thought about which particular tool or technique or, or therapeutic practice is the one that will work, whether it be, you know, mindfulness-based therapy or whether it be, you know, and being in a padded room and whacking everything with a baseball bat versus talking it out versus talking yeah. about what your mother did when you were a child. Yeah. But key, the key underlying factor that's present in all of these is typically a relationship with another person. Yeah. Um, and that's often what the active ingredient is. It's someone else taking a bit of time to help you learn to regulate mm. and grow and change. That's often the, the key in there. And it's interesting when I when I was writing my book on women's brain health and I was talked to, I took a womb to tomb look at women's brains, the female brain through the lifespan. And it didn't matter whether it was newborns or kids going through puberty or a teenager starting high school or um, a, a new mum with a newborn baby or a woman going through menopause or someone in aged care at the end of their lifespan, what was always key to that person thriving as they went through these sort of windows of, of life change versus struggling was other people around them, mm. whether they, you know, it was the mum holding the newborn baby or whether it was someone holding someone's hand in aged care. Mm. Um, it's always another person. And that social prescription, as I say, is often so far down on people's well-being list when it really should be at the top. But I think people have come to realise that. Mm. Loneliness yeah. is just so damaging. Um, there's this there's this great quote, quote from a guy Alex Haslam who works at the University of Queensland on a lot of these issues and he says um, illness loves nothing more than to get it sink its teeth into a lonely person and that is true because everything what you know from the bottom up the outside and the top down's out out of whack when we're not socially connected to other people so that's why I think relationships and warm caring relationships not damaging abusive hmm. negative relationships but you know they they are they are the, the the greatest thing that we can do to help others yeah um is to you know remember that ourselves and i think um you know and i've got I experiences myself over christmas you know in the northern beaches and we, we had our little lockdown we call it an idly piddly little lockdown yeah. in lots of the world um and and it was like i was like oh, I feel like it was like Christmas Day and I had my husband and my kids. I was like, oh, I any, you know, I felt really, I'd had a in COVID test. They went off the beach and I was all by myself on Christmas Day and I was waiting. Yeah. And, and I felt really lonely and I thought, well, I could sit here and I can spiral down and I can make it all about me and I can self-reflect and, or I can bring someone up who might also be feeling a bit lonely today. Yeah. And that's, I think, we've got to reach out mm. and sometimes think about who else might be lonely who yeah. else might need and not just 
there's so much <laughs> the self-help industry I think it can be quite damaging because it almost kind of encourages self-reflection a bit too much that so becomes self-absorption mm. um, which can lead to isolation so so that's that's why I think social relationships are, are the key Mm. yeah brilliant I, I remember one of the um mm. the founders of positive psychology um the late uh, dr chris peterson said to summarize positive psychology um in a sentence is that other people matter mm. <laughs> it's like it all boils down to other people matter yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and i think that's you know what my mum always brought me up with you know i said when i was in, you know really embedded in academic neuroscience i was like well does that does this matter to other people? Because mm. other people matter. Mm. And um, there's, this, there's another scientist I worked with when I was doing one of my postdocs here in Sydney, um, Paul Baldock, and he's a bone scientist, which may sound very dry and boring, but he's, he's anything but. And his, he says he makes every single decision in his life by asking two questions. One, is it awesome? So, you know, is it, is it something I like? And two, does it help? And I think, you know, does other people matter? I think, is it that, that, has to be a part of, you know, that's just a two, that's just a Venn diagram with two circles. Yeah. Um, and I, the, we so often forget about helping other people yeah. as, as should be in the middle. Yeah. And it helps ourselves, right? Sorry. Um, and it helps us, right? When we um, contribute to others, we we benefit from yeah, that. Yeah, for sure. Well, it's, always two, it's always two way. <laughs> You know, our brains are really, you know, regulating each other and that data that's that's kind of being shared back and forth by two brains interacting and communicating. We know how damaging it is to a brain when that doesn't happen during development. Yeah. So yeah, we need to, yeah, we need a bit more of that. Yeah. yeah. Not, and not just via Zoom, but for now Zoom is the best we've got. Yeah, <laughs> it, is, it is the best we've got. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your book um, before we, we close. Yeah, for sure. So I wrote it a few couple of years ago now um, called The Woman's Brain Book, The Neuroscience of Health, Hormones and Happiness, although in the UK it's called Demystifying the Female Brain. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to call it In Her Head. Yeah. Um, but the publishers thought that sounded too much like, you know, the girl on the train or people might think it was a psychological thriller. <laughs> yeah, right. So I call everything else in her head when I'm doing talking about the book, teaching the book. See, I, I, I wrote it because I realised I had been working as a neuroscientist for a good 25 years, been the owner and operator of female body and brain since birth. Had never, and, and I, said, I said before, neuroscience is a big, chunky subject. I had never really before thought about, you know, puberty and pregnancy and the pill and um, menopause and you know, why do women get more more likely to be diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease or anxiety and depression? I'd never before thought about all of these sort of female health issues or life events through the lens of neurobiology. And I realised I had a very long list of questions that I didn't know the answers to. Mm. I, I did not know the answers to almost all of them. So I wrote them down in a very long list, which ended up being my chapter headings and subheadings and just set about on a journey to... Um, find out those answers which was right. wonderful about a year of talking to scientists researchers clinicians reading papers reading books watching TED talks it was very self-indulgent because I like learning new stuff that's my mm. kind of key strength and um and then I and so then I write write wrote a book on this womb to tomb journey of the female body and brain and conversation 
Great. Amazing. Um, people can buy it and all, well, I don't know whether it's still in the bookshops. I was in Dimmicks when I went in the other day in my local mall, if I'm, you know, on Google online and you'll find links to yeah. the bookstores. And just as a as a little teaser to anyone listening, um, I'm certainly curious. What were one or two of the most surprising findings for you in answering uh, those questions? Yeah, I went in very much thinking it was going to be a book about bottom up biology and the role that hormones play in shaping who we are as women with brains. And I learned looking at every aspect of the theme, you know, like puberty. EMS, pregnancy, perimenopause, all of these life events that the loudest voice in the crowd isn't hormones, it's other people. And it didn't matter whether, in every study that has been done, whether it be looking at individual women or whether it be looking at longitudinal studies of the life course, a stronger indicator of a good, healthy outcome, a woman thriving through that, uh, a healthy brain, a healthy mind with social connections, not hormonal state. Wow. Wow. There we go. <laughs> okay. We've just done part one with you. <laughs> part two is going to be on about in her head. head. We'll call, yes. We're yeah, we'll call call it her head. Head. Let's just change the name of the podcast, actually. <laughs> Let's just start again and go straight to in her head. <laughs> um, that's so cool. Um, and I know I said last question, but I have one more about that because you just triggered it. Um, right. And Sorry. so... <laughs> <laughs> I heard, I think I heard you say recently um, or sometime that um, hormones themselves aren't actually the reason for emotional moods necessarily. Ooh, careful. Now, one voice in the crowd, I think, is perhaps safest to say. One voice. But one voice in the crowd. And sometimes they can be quite loud and other times you can barely hear them. The other people are the loudest voices in the crowd. I mean, there's, there's lots of um, sort of ways in, into that question. From a, from a neuroscience, you know, kind of big picture neuroscience perspective is that emotions are not sort of hardwired and that they're just sort of rolled out from our little lizardy brains in response to particular situations. They're created, our brain is predicting them moment by moment by moment based on this sort of, uh, you know, taking into account the state of our body. So what are these bottom-up signals that we're, receiving based on our memories and experiences of last time we felt that way <clears throat> within a particular situation or environment in which we're in. So just one of those data inputs coming in is, is sort of hormonal state we're in. Some women are far more getting stronger signals coming in from the hormones than other women. Other women, those hormones may be a very, very, you know, quiet little data point and others that they're, they're much stronger. But in all women, there's also the previous experiences, memories, what you've been taught to expect, the culture you were raised in, the society you were raised in, and the situation in which you are in. Another time we often look at it is to, to, to look at PMS or premenstrual syndrome. And, and there's a lot of stories going around that's when women get very cranky that week or so before their period. Large meta-analysis that has been done looking at reported rates of PMS around the world shows it varies between 10 and 90%, depending which country you live in. Massive variation depending on your society, your culture, the narrative that you have grown up with, how much attention perhaps you pay to those signals coming in from your hormones or whether you've never been told that they make any difference at all. is a large determinant on your emotional state in that point of time than the actual hormones that 
Wow. wow. <laughs> data around 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 that and um, just so, yeah. sorry just to clarify that um because I, I was almost almost fell off my chair when i heard you say that um that <laughs> the 10 what what sort of country was the 10 percent what kind of country is the 95 there is a trend towards countries with less gender equality more patriarchal societies having far higher rates of pms um, versus countries where there's lower rates of PMS, reported rates of PMS, or it being a thing, um, in countries that have, you know, kind of got a bit, a bit more balance. And a lot of it's to do, and you can see quite different cultural attitudes. So interestingly, France has very, very low rates of women putting their hands up saying, I suffer from PMS. Over there, it's like, but if you do not suffer. <laughs> <laughs> Over the border in Spain, about 50%. Um, Asian countries vary widely. The highest rates are in the Middle East. Iran is the highest with 90%. Once you kind of break that down, then you're starting to look at a girl is raised in a family with a, with a real strong narrative one way or another, depending on what that mother's attitude may or may not be. I just want to say it's really important. These studies that have been done looking at PM, there's, there's the physical symptoms that women have, which are real, and there's emotional symptoms that women have which are real and feeling irritable and angry and stressed out is completely normal however what we attribute it to is what we are often taught yeah. about yeah. there are as I said there are there is a subset of women perhaps about five to ten percent of the population who do have a really really strong data signal coming in signaling their hormonal status and it does have a strong impact on their emotional state or how they're feeling at any particular point in time mm. Fascinating, eh? Yes. Rory's wrap. Sarah, I just want to say firstly, thank you for coming on the podcast. When I first heard you speak, um, it was definitely the Kiwi accent that was um that kind of preceded everything else. But then <laughs> digging into your work and, and hearing you talk more, uh, you just bring such a practical and digestible kind of understanding around some really complex science and you know, I know we talked a little bit of it at the start about there's a role for, you know, the the really um, lab-based science and it absolutely is. But I think, you know, doing what you're doing and actually taking from that and making it practical and, and helping people to apply it in their own life and their own way is um, such a meaningful and important thing to do. Um, and so thank you for signing up for doing that and for, um, you know, being a real leader in that in that space. Um, and I think a couple of things that struck me that I think are really relevant for our, um, for all of us and is just how much agency we actually have when it comes to like even the neurobiology and, you know, how much dopamine is released or, um, you know, and we can actually, um, by applying the sorts of things you talk about, we can orchestrate our environment and we can um, kind of understand our patterns and we can, think about how to improve those so to feel better and so to function better. And, um, you know, I think that puts us in the driver's seat of, you know, how we are in the world. And, and also in the same breath, it's also real, like have you kind of really remind us to have compassion about the fact that, you know, whilst we have this agency to choose a better response, mm -hmm. there's going to be times when we, um, react or you know um, behave in ways that we're not proud of and in those times is our opportunity to come back 
to the moment to make the next choice and to to sort of recognize that sometimes it's our our brain you know working against us because it's not morally judging you know and in the driver's seat so the compassion to actually see um that yes we're in the driver's seat but also sometimes you know patterns and, and habits take over and that it's it's not something to be ashamed of it's something to um acknowledge and to come back to and ask okay well how can i do that better next time so um thanks for demystifying so much of that um and there's definitely would love to have a part two um to talk more about about all mm. of this um but meantime i think yeah. you know i definitely encourage people to check out your work check out your book um i'll certainly be checking out your book because my wife is pregnant at the moment so <laughs> you know i think there's a lot for me to quickly <laughs> learn uh quickly learn and get up to you speed on you learn about the myth of baby brain the myth of baby oh i've mentioned pregnancy me. makes you smarter. really i'm still <laughs> blaming my brain on baby brain um and <laughs> so imagine yeah that's going to go down well and i say no no that's not a thing <laughs> <laughs> give her my book to read don't don't you try and tell her that won't work uh but uh Siri, again thank you for thank you for making it so practical and understandable um and for those that are interested in learning more about you and your work and reading your book and 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 really applying this stuff for themselves how can they best follow along with what you're doing um google dr sarah mckay drsarahmckay.com is my website and there'll be links to social media and my courses and my book and um, some of the TV and radio and various shows that I've done. That's probably the best portal into my mind. Okay. <laughs> awesome. And we'll be sure to put those links in the show notes so that people can just click in and check it out. So thanks so much for coming on the show and until part two. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so good to meet you and can't wait to chat again. So welcome, thank you.